0: the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria.
1: Sorry, wrong button. Warwick Long with you for the Country Hour today. Uh, Plenty of news to talk about with you. Fonterra has settled its claim, well, its class action against it with farmers due to the clawbacks of 2016. The price cuts uh, have been in court for some time in the case, which went before the Supreme Court in 2020. But now it appears the case has been settled. We'll go through the figures and hear from lawyers on the program shortly. You'll also hear a statement, at least, from Coles, the supermarket giant, which wrote to farmer suppliers telling them that they didn't want them to pass on costs uh, increased costs due to the increase in prices to produce that produce but if price savings were found they wanted those savings passed on to the supermarket you'll also hear from farm leaders today about the damage of uh, the floods to victorian agriculture and a whole lot more nearly started for you just before but let's get into it now Emma field has rural news for you today hi emma
2: G'day Warwick, making rural news. Yesterday we heard Canadian-owned Cook Aquaculture will take over Australia's largest salmon company, Tassel. Subject to a court hearing, Cook will take over Tassel on the 21st of November. While Tassel is most famous for its Tasmanian salmon production, it also operates in northern Queensland. James Cook University Aquaculture Professor Dean Jerry says the takeover is a positive thing.
3: So this news really highlights to me how aquaculture in Australia and globally is becoming more and more corporatized, uh, given its rapid growth and its potential to be, you know, highly producing animal protein sector. So it's not really a surprise given the size of CASAL and their business strategy with the, the spelman and the the prawns in Australia, and doing this highly successful, that a major international company has sought to uh, invest in the company to uh, you know tap into that growth that has been occurring.
2: Western Australia's largest sheep and lamb processing cooperative, Wamco, reported a record profit of fifty point five million dollars for the year ending June the thirtieth, twenty twenty two blitzing its previous record of around $20 million. The company oversees WA-based plant at Catanning and a facility at Goulburn in New South Wales. WAMCO's Group Chief Executive, Cole McCurry, says it's a pleasing result given the COVID and labour challenges they face during the year. And they are also looking at another record for the number of head processed this year
4: it was very evenly uh, matched to be honest. The first half of the season was very, very strong for Catani and they would have had the better first six months. But the second six months, uh, Goulburn just um, absolutely flew and uh, we saw huge numbers of stock which has been created by the good seasons over there, the last two or three seasons in the build of stock. We did about 1.86 million stock units, which you know, it's it's up there. It's it's up pretty close to, uh, I wouldn't say it's the best we've ever done, but it's getting up there to be one of the better years we have had. I do expect more to be processed this 12 months between the two sites.
2: Regional and rural vets across Australia are struggling. They endure long hours, poor pay and emotion- and emotionally distressing work environment. The problem is especially dire in rural and regional areas where there just aren't enough vets to meet demand. Queensland Sunshine Coast-based vet Dr Sarah Morton says they can't attract graduates to their regional practices and it puts enormous pressure on existing rural-based vets. I worked through having two and three vet
5: vacancies for months at a time and we just couldn't get anyone and it was really, really hard, awful. Um, because there's people and animals that rely on you and you, it's very hard to say no, even if you're over capacity yourself. Like, it still breaks me sometimes. It's very hard, you know, like, you've got to do such sad work sometimes and it can be really
2: heartbreaking. South Australian-based grain handler Viterra, which also has silos in Victoria, has revealed some of their payroll data has been the subject of a cyber attack The grain company says data of current and former Viterra employees from 2006 were part of a cyber attack on Frontier Software which provided them with payroll software. Frontier Software believes there is no evidence the data has been misused. And finally, Charity Food Bank says despite farmers producing the food we need, Producers are also being affected by food insecurity. Food Bank CEO Brianna Casey says her organisation is having to purchase food where it previously had it donated.
5: Whilst there is a huge part of eastern Australia currently underwater and and experiencing devastating flooding, There's also a large number of communities across Australia still recovering from previous natural disasters over the last few years. We're still providing food relief into areas affected by the 2019-2020 bushfires. Uh, Communities such as the Northern Rivers of New South Wales and Southeast Queensland went through devastating floods earlier this year. We are going to be assisting those communities not for days and weeks but for months and years because we know it takes time to rebuild and time to recover.
2: And for this Friday, Warwick, that's Rural
1: News. Thanks very much for that. Emma Field there with Rural News for you today. This lunchtime, uh, you can send us a text if you will want, 0467. Eight four two seven double two work along with you for the Country Hour today. Shortly, Emma Germano from the Victorian Farmers Federation is going to join you. We're going to talk through some statistics and where things stand for farmers after the uh, Agriculture Victoria has released some numbers to us on the damage to agriculture. We'll go through that shortly on the program. But before that, Fonterra has told the Supreme Court today of its intention to settle with farmers who brought a class action against the company for price cuts in 2016. Fonterra followed murray Goulburn with retrospective clawbacks on farm gate milk prices in 2016 and farmers say they suffered financial harm with many leaving the industry at the time. Just before the class action case was due to head to court, both parties have told the court that they've agreed to settle today for $25 million. In fact, Fonterra have provided a statement to the ABC which says, and I'll quote to you now, uh, Fonterra Australia has reached an agreement to settle class action proceedings filed on behalf of affected farmers relating to events in 2016. We've settled the class action without any admission of liability as we believe it's in the best interests of farmers, the dairy industry and our business so we can all move forward. Over the last 6 years we have invested a significant amount of time and effort to overhaul our relationship with farmers to rebuild trust and strengthen the dairy industry. We are proud of the good relationships we have today with our farmers and the wider industry and are committed to investing in the future of Australian dairy for years to come. The settlement sum of Australian $25 million inclusive of interest and all costs has already been provided for in the prior year's financial statements and will have a material and will not have a material impact on Fonterra Cooperative Group Limited's financial position. Like all class actions, the settlement is subject to court approval. Both sides gave uh, uh, undertakings to the court today in terms of that settlement and the court is yet to decide exactly on how the $25 million will be distributed to those who funded the class action lawsuit and the farmers that were being represented in the costs involved. We've spoken to lawyers saying 300, more than 350 farmers had registered with uh, the law firm, Adley Bursteiner before the court case uh, was due to head to court, um, stating their, their interest and their loss due to the financial clawbacks of Fonterra. And we will be getting a, a statement from the law firm soon. We're hoping to speak to them today, this lunchtime. Uh, that is not happening now. Uh, but when that statement is provided, we will give you more details as it happens. Uh, It is likely... Uh, both lawyers representing uh, the farmers presented to the court today that it is unlikely anything will be money will be within farmers before Christmas. In fact, the court decided early next year, which is around February and March, is when money will start to be distributed to farmers. So watch this space. But Fonterra and uh, the farmers bringing the class. Action lawsuit against it have settled for $25 million today, subject to uh, approval of the court. Uh, That Settlement is without any admission of liability. You're listening to The Country Hour. It is a quarter past 12. You can send us a text 0467 842 722. Another issue we've been following along on The Country Hour lately is that of the effect to agriculture in terms of the floods. We were finding it quite difficult to get information out of the Victorian government's agriculture arm, Agriculture Victoria, on what they were we're discovering in terms of the losses to agriculture. They have provided us with some of those numbers now and we'll provide those to you next.
0: The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria.
1: Yes, as I said, Agriculture Victoria, which has been making phone calls out to farmers. They say approximately uh, more, well, more than 6,000 outbound telephone calls have been made to farmers impacted by flooding to assess damages and address any animal welfare issues if you're listening to the country out early in the week we were finding it difficult to get information from the Victorian government's arm of agriculture on the loss to the state's agriculture as a as a result of the floods well we've got some of those figures now uh, agriculture victoria has provided a statement Uh, No one available to interview, but that says as of the 2nd of November, we estimate that approximately 12,000 agricultural properties, including smaller lifestyle properties, have been impacted by flooding across northern Victoria. Uh, Currently, the uh, collected impact assessment say that um, there has been the loss of more than 3,000 livestock, 3,000 livestock dead. 900 livestock still missing, 5,000 kilometres of fencing damaged and 50,000 tonnes of hay or silage destroyed. And they say it's important to note that these numbers don't give the full picture of the damage and loss suffered that has occurred across Northern Victoria or by individual properties as this varies across location and industry. Uh, Those figures coming in though, as you've heard, are quite stark. More than 3,000 livestock dead as a result of flooding in northern Victoria, 900 livestock still missing, 5,000 kilometres of fencing damaged and 50,000 tonnes of hay or silage destroyed. Emma Germano is the president of the Victorian Farmers Federation and can join you now. Emma Germano, welcome back to The Country Hour. G'day, Warwick. Those numbers are quite stark, even if they are low estimates at this stage.
6: Yeah, I, I think that doesn't represent um, uh, nearly all of the people that have been, or uh, farmers that have been impacted, of course. Um, I think that of those phone calls, actually that represents about 2,000 people that have actually been or farm business owners that have been um, contacted. So a lot of phone calls to get to 2,000, but there's obviously a, a lot more to go. And um, the numbers that I was also given was a, a more than 127,000 hectares of impacted crops as well. So, yeah, it's huge and, it, and it's going to continue to um, grow. Those numbers will continue to grow.
1: And does that make this season, which promised so much earlier in the year, um, turn towards being a a sour one for many farmers that you represent in the state?
6: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's going to continue this weather. I mean, even if you've got – crops are still out there and okay, they've got to be harvested. and, And who knows how we're going to get them harvested at this point in time. So. Um, that's the other thing it's not just about people who have been impacted by flood borders but there are people who might not have actually had a flood go over their property but of course the weather impacts have, have meant that they've got great losses as well so it's going to be a you know, bit of a we're in for a bit of a time across Victorian agriculture I think and um, you know farmers are going to have to be making those decisions as to not just what it looks like next week but what's it going to look like in two months and in four months without all that fodder.
1: And a statement from the, both the, the federal and the state governments earlier in this week have lifted the, the flood grants affected to farmers up to $75,000 for primary producers, $25,000 for small-scale producers. Uh, uh, initially, there was a, a $10,000 grant, and this money has now been added to that. Uh, uh, is that enough to help producers get back on their feet?
6: Um, it's it's been added, but you'll still that if you've received the first 10, that'll, um, you know, that'll still be part of that, uh, you know, ultimate 75 if you're in that particular, so bracket. you can
1: only get the $65,000 extra if you've yeah, got the first and, 10. And it,
6: and- yeah and then it's about how much you know you can apply for without evidence um and then what you need to have evidence for in in regards to receipt um of payment of of you know specific things that you're actually paying for um and then of course there's a concessional loan available too so um my understanding is the concessional loan is just like any other loan so you you do have to go through and provide security and and do all that stuff so they might be a little bit slow coming online but um There's been quite a lot of approvals for those initial grants already and and I think that rural finance have been doing quite a good job to get those out as quickly as possible. Um, And we were given every assurance that actually they're trying to help so they're not trying to rule people out. Um, So particularly if you're not sure whether or not um, you'll apply, uh, you know, you'll be – Uh, eligible just apply and and Rural Finance will work that um, through with producers and also there's the Rural Financial Counselors there that can literally help you do those applications as well so if in doubt just absolutely apply for funding and, um, and you know work through it as you go.
1: Are you generally happy with the assistance that has been provided so far or are there holes that you think any level of government should be looking at?
6: Look, I think that they could have well, – it was a bit of a no-brainer that this was going to end up as a Category D. That's what we called for initially. We said get those $75,000 payments out there. That That's similar to um, other natural disasters that have happened. Um, you know, there was that dilly-dallying around for a week before any grants were um, announced and then, you know, it's been another week or – or more that um, it's taken to get it up to the 75,000 and I think that um, what I'm hearing most is that there is just such a sense of frustration and fatigue that that those signals from government that they're going to be there to step in and, and allowing producers to know what they're going to be able to receive I think actually helps somewhat in creating a bit of hope and resilience so it's probably annoying that it came it took a little while for it to be announced of course If you've just lost millions of dollars worth of crop, or, you know, thousands ahead of livestock, um, you know, the 75K is not going to obviously cover that. But, um, you know, it goes some way to to helping people to recover. And then there's other agencies out there, um, you know, helping also.
1: Emma Germano is with you, the VFF president. Obviously, we had to start with floods, the most important thing affecting a large chunk of our state right now. I wanted to ask you about a, a couple of other things, Emma Germano, uh, before we finish. Earlier this week on this program, we've heard from farmers offended when a letter to suppliers from supermarket giant Coles suggested producers turn their minds to cutting costs on the supply side rather than rely on a price rise from the supermarket. Uh, this year, Coles has announced it's going to lock in prices on eleven one hundred items until at least the end of January. I have a statement from Coles I want to read to you, but I did ask the Agriculture Minister Murray what about this yesterday. This is what he had to say.
7: Mm. Well, I think that all Australians expect our big retailers to treat our farming community respectfully and well. And I don't think we can have a situation of double standards where retailers expect to take all of the positives and none of the negatives. Um, We know that farmers are struggling at the moment with higher input costs, and that is leading to increased cost of production, which does have to be passed on Uh, in some cases at least to retailers and to consumers. And I think retailers have got an obligation there as well. So my position really is that we need to have a level playing field as much as we can and producers need some bargaining power in their negotiations with retailers and they can't be expected uh, to cop all of the bad stuff and none of the good stuff. Can
1: government do something here? Will you speak to Coles?
7: Uh, Look, I I probably need to get across the issue a little bit more, Warwick, uh, at the moment. Uh, It it only got raised with me for the first time today. Um, But what I've sort of said to you is the general principle that we'll be adopting. And I'm certainly happy uh, to work with farm groups and, and others to keep our retailers to account. We, you know, obviously all Australians buy their groceries and don't want to have to pay any more than they possibly have to. But we need to make sure that producers get a fair go in this system as well.
1: And Coles has provided a written response to the ABC today, which I'll read to you now. It says, We are absolutely committed to working with our suppliers to navigate the challenges associated with inflation to ensure we are helping Australians with cost-of-living pressures whilst being fair and mindful of the impacts facing our suppliers. Over the past few months, the number of requests we've received for price increases have risen significantly, and we have dedicated additional resources to ensure... We're dealing with these requests in a fair and timely manner and in accordance with the grocery code, being mindful of both the impacts to our suppliers and our customers when it comes to natural disasters. Our fresh produce teams are absolutely committed to supporting our suppliers on the ground and we've worked closely with farmers and growers to help their businesses recover after devastating events such as the floods. Emma Germano is with you, the VFF uh, president. You've heard from the Agriculture Minister and from Coles, which has written to suppliers. Firstly, have you heard from many farmers um, that you represent over the last week about that letter from Coles asking them not to pass on any price increases?
6: Yeah, I certainly um, received a copy of it. And, you know, the problem is, of course, that farmers can't come out individually and, and say that that's the letter that they've received for fear of retribution from the from the retailer, whether it's, you know, Coles or any other retailer as, as these issues go, go by. Um, I mean... I, it, we were just talking about language and signalling and offering people a sense of hope and giving them a, the opportunity to feel resilient. And I just think that the sentiment in that letter is, you know, at the at the at best, it's really really poor wording, and at worst, it, it's really sinister. I mean, this is from a company that was what what was it a billion dollars worth of um, profits last year and an increase of more than four percent. Um, on their bottom line. So at what point do Coles actually say, well, we need to step in here and and everybody's feeling the pinch um, and and that needs to include Coles too. And and the other retailers, you know, it's it's easy to say that about Coles because that's where the letter is. But, you know, we we need to have that attitude of um, the whole supply chain needs to be rallying to support each other and to ensure that, you know, customers are still able to get good value when they go to buy their buy their groceries each week. So, yeah, it's, it, I, I just think it's really poor language um, at, at the very best.
1: Uh, and that language from Coles in the statement provided to the ABC, basically saying... <laughs> We've had an increase in the number of requests for price increases significantly, and now they're they're trying to to deal with them fairly. At the same time, writing to producers telling them that we're not going to pass on price increases anymore seems like they're they're saying one thing to the media and and another thing to the producers that supply them.
6: Yeah, well, and you know what? You don't bite the hand that feeds you. I mean, we can keep saying this over and over again. Uh, There's no question that there's people in the community that are absolutely struggling now and really you know, quite panicked about the cost of living. Um, you know, we've got inflation going through the roof. We know all of these things, so I just, you know, Colts just needs to be better than that when it comes to speaking with their their suppliers because we've got um, farmers, particularly, and and you know, fresh produce suppliers that are saying, well, "What are we going to do?" And you need to know that you've got the backing of your of your customer, um, who we've all got to support each other through the through the times that we're going to be going through. So to I, I particularly like the fact that it was, you know, if it's a, a raw material that the price has gone up on. Um, you know, we'll we'll consider that, like packaging, for example. I'd just like to know what cost they think that producers are going to be adding um, that are not, you know, input costs increasing and, and if they actually expect that the producers are increasing their profits because it's certainly not what's actually happening. And at the same time, like I said, coals have been increasing their profits. So everybody's going to have to take a hit here together, including the community who's going to have to pay for some of these increased um, input costs. Um, And that's just a sign of the economic times and and we've got to work on it as a community. And we have to make sure that whatever we do during this tough time doesn't undermine the future resilience. So you don't want a whole bunch of producers going to the wall now because it's only going to make the whole system less resilient and prices go further up, you know, as we
1: as we go along, Emma Germano, the VFF president, is with you at the moment, and you. Uh, just a, another thing on the internal workings of the Victorian Farmers Federation. Uh, it's been. Uh, revealed that you've got a contest on your hand to retain your presidency. Uh, the nominations have closed and you'll be standing against uh, Paul Mumford, the former, former head of the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria, and Meg Parkinson, a, an egg producer in Gippsland, who's stood for the VFF presidency in the past before. Are you expecting tough competition to retain your role?
6: I just smiled. I thought there was no way I was going to get to inter- the end of an interview with you, Warwick, without you bringing that up. Um you know, this is this is democracy at work and I, I there was never, and I've read a number of articles with my name in them saying it's a big secret as to what Emma was going to do. I came out early and said, of course, I'll run again. Um, I've started a job there. I was given a mandate by the members to actually change the organisation, transform it, modernise it and, you know, that's not a job that happens in five minutes. There's been significant headwinds along the way, you know, whether it's COVID lockdown for another year. Um, You know, now we've got floods. There's just so much work that goes on at the VFF all of the time. And to come out in the middle of, you know, 12,000 farm businesses underwater and declare what I was doing as if anybody cared about, you know, Emma's presidency, I just thought was absolutely disrespectful. So I was not going to enter into the conversation at that point, but you're quite right. Um, You know, nominations have closed and there's people that want to stand against me and, and that's their... Um, prerogative to do so but of course i'm going to um, put my hand up and say um, i'm here to finish the job that i started and um and happy to stand by the track record in a, in a job that is to be perfectly honest quite a difficult one but um, it's an honor to represent the farmers and i do it with earnest
1: and there's no secrets here of course because we will ask you the question and in terms of that emma, emma gemano with you uh, there's other roles for the vff uh, and the UDV and, and Commodity Councils that have been uh, uh, accepted for nominations. And one of those is somebody who took the, the VFF to court. Ian Morris has been accepted to stand for a role with the VFF after the court action of, of the last year. So is that allowed?
6: Oh, of course it's allowed. Um, uh I would encourage anybody to go out there and read the judgment, which did not say anything about the merit of the decision of the board. It actually speaks more about the process that we went through in regards to dealing with that particular issue. And I would just say to everybody out there there is a material weakness in the constitution of the VFF. Our organisation must be able to um, make decisions about the type of values that we want to espouse and the type of behaviours that we want to see exhibited um, to create an environment that is safe for everybody to um, participate paid in and not one where I know a lot of young producers who say oh the VFF as if I want to go to a meeting that there's people shouting at each other and and all the carry on and all of the politics and that's something that I'm happy to say that I I don't stand for I don't think that that's the future of the organisation I don't think that that's what the new generation of farmers coming into the organisation and into the industry um, want from an organisation that's supposed to represent them you know no point's we're all arguing amongst ourselves. The the fights out there, not not amongst who the members are or who the members aren't. So um, it was just, the just quickly
1: that, then. If you're both successful, can you work with Mr. Morris around the same table?
6: Uh, if democracy plays out that way, that's exactly what will have to happen. And, and there's a professionalism that you bring to a role, and um, you know that that decision will be made by the members ultimately. So of course. Um, And at the end of the day, it's never one person's decision. So certainly not an Emma Germano show that I made all the decisions in regards to how that thing proceeded, but I'm the chair of the board and I have to take, um, you know, do the wishes of the board and that's what I did. And, you know, the, the point that you made about Paul Mumford, he was absolutely, you know, the initiator of that particular um thing that we started and and um you know he, he's going to have to sit there too so we're all in this together and it, it can be awkward at times and it's sometimes the most embarrassing part of the organization but that's the that's the moral of democracy and 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 so be it it's great that people want to stand and put their hand up because at the end of the day it's an important organization and i absolutely believe in the, the work that the vff does and we need to have more people involved
1: uh, emma germano thanks very much for joining us on the program Cheers. Emma Giamano, the president of the Victorian Farmers Federation, covering a lot of ground there, clearly the most important is the damage to Victorian agriculture due to the floods. Um, Those figures are very interesting to look at and we'll try and keep them updated as much as we can throughout uh, the emergency and also as we move into the cleanup for many of you. But as you've heard in news bulletins and even later in our program, very much still going on as well. It is 28 to 1 here on the program, which means I'm late for regional news headlines. we better go there now to find out what's happening around regional Victoria this lunchtime with Natasha Shipova. Good afternoon, Natasha.
8: Good afternoon, Warwick. Making news. The Department of Transport is urging regional Victorians to plan travel carefully with hundreds of roads closed and damaged due to flooding. Echuca, Kerrang, Shepparton, Marupna, Orvale and Murchison are areas of most concern. There are more than 450 road clo- roads closed across the state. The Department of Education has confirmed a primary school on the Murray River was evacuated this morning due to flooding concerns. Emergency services asked for the 100 students at the primary school in Kundrook, two hours north of Bendigo on the New South Wales border, to be sent home after just one hour of classes. A council-run kindergarten was also evacuated after the Murray reached the top of the levee next to the school. Swan Hill Incident Controller Keith O'Brien says the levee has not broken and there is no immediate threat to the area. A male inmate from an Ararat jail has been airlifted to the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne in a serious condition. It's understood an incident involving the prisoner occurred at Hopkins Correctional Centre just after midday yesterday. The inmate sustained serious upper body injuries, but no other prisoners or staff were injured, according to authorities. The Environment Protection Authority is expecting water quality test results from the central and northern Victorian floods today. The EPA tested water from Echuca, Shepparton and Rochester and expects it will have traces of E. coli, pesticides and pharmaceuticals that are causing illness in residents. The EPA says testing will continue as the contaminated water could remain for several weeks. A major gas and oil company operating off the Gippsland coast is paying no income tax, according to a new report from the Australian Taxation Office. The report released yesterday details how much tax Australia's biggest companies paid during the 2020 to 2021 financial year. So, which operates off the Gippsland coast, earned $11 billion in total income but paid no income tax. And for more regional news, head to our website at abc.net.au forward slash news or download the ABC News app.
1: Thanks very much for that. Natasha Shapova there with regional news headlines. I thought I got rid of that coffin. I think it's come straight back. Uh, 0467 If you want to send us a text, some interesting ones coming through. Tom from Winslow just on the issue of Coles and their letter to suppliers asking them to keep costs down and not pass them on. He says, I'd like to hear Curtis Stone's response to that letter from Coles to their suppliers, without whom, by the way, they would be unable to operate. Unbelievably stupid thing to have done. I'll be thinking twice about going through their doors ever again. Tom's text there. You can send your thoughts as well. Another one in regards to the Fontara class action. I'd better read that better before I read that out to you. And another one saying, Warwick, one out of left field, but with all the water and mosquitoes, are we going to bring back sentinel chickens, which they got rid of last year to check for diseases? Probably not because sentinel chickens were replaced with new technology that tests the mosquito rather than the blood of the chicken for those diseases. And I believe that's still operating um, from the Department of Health, but great work, Anonymous Texter, because what I can do is contact the Victorian Department of Health to find out what is operating in terms of checking mosquitoes for disease this summer, which I will do on your behalf. Let's go to the Weather Bureau, though, and find out what's happening weather-wise on this beautifully sunny day in northern Victoria. Hannah Marsh can do that for us, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. G'day, Hannah.
9: Good afternoon, Warwick
1: white fluffy clouds and blue skies is not something I've seen much of lately but it is the scene outside my window right now.
9: It has been a little while hasn't it? We've uh, got some cloud about southern and western parts but as you mentioned uh, particularly about the northeast we have got a little bit of cloud uh, but more sunshine than cloud which uh, we haven't seen in a while but hopefully the outlook does have more of that on the horizon. Um, We've seen some isolated showers about the south but really since 9am we haven't seen much more than uh, 0.2 of a millimetre and this will continue to ease and clear as we head into the afternoon period. Temperature wise, having a look at some of the centres, it's been to 20 degrees at Albury, 19 at Shepparton and Bendigo, 16 at Horsham, 15 at Melbourne and 14 at Warrnambool so far today. Then, having a look, uh, our weather is really dominated by a high pressure system, and this continues uh, as we head into the weekend. We do have a trough, though, over New South Wales that will gradually extend towards Victoria, which will see some shower activity about the eastern district. So, that will start tomorrow, and there is the possibility of seeing um, a thunderstorm about parts of, or eastern parts of Gippsland tomorrow. Also, there is a chance of seeing some morning fog around tomorrow morning. Again, mainly on and south of the Divide. Otherwise, uh, we're looking at a dry day for Saturday. Temperature's starting to increase. So we're looking at 22 for Melbourne, 25 at Mildura, 21 for Horsham, 20 at Bendigo, getting up to 23 degrees for Shepparton, 22 also at Albury-Wodonga. 20 for Hamilton, and uh, also uh, looking at 21 degrees at Sale. Then Sunday is going to be pretty similar in terms of the weather. So that trough just extends further down into Victoria, um, with the showers increasing, particularly about western, uh, eastern parts, and extending into central parts as well on Saturday and uh, Sunday, and also on Monday. The chance of thunderstorms is also a broader area, and there is just a, the slight chance of seeing a thunderstorm about the southwest of the state on Sunday as well. Uh, but the main focus is the temperatures increasing. So, really, as we head towards next week, we're looking at the temperatures getting up towards the mid, uh, even into the high 20s by Tuesday, and pushing 30. So, getting up to uh, 30 for Mildura and Swan Hill. Uh, Sorry, 31 at Mildura and 32 at Swan Hill by Wednesday, ahead of the next system that we're expecting to come through from Thursday onwards.
1: And as far as warnings-wise, what are we looking at today?
9: Uh, So... Most of the warnings that we had yesterday in terms of the sheep graziers and marine warnings have been cancelled. We still have uh, flood warnings current, particularly around the Murray. Uh, but please check our website at www.bomb.gov.au to keep up to date with the flooding situation.
1: And as far as the weekend weather goes, Hannah, any, any warnings likely to develop? Or with that stable weather, uh, are we in for a fairly clear weekend?
9: At this stage, uh, it is looking not too bad Um, with those thunderstorms. We're not expecting severity uh, at this stage, but again, we will keep monitoring it, uh, particularly on Sunday and Monday.
1: Fantastic. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Hannah Marsh there, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through... The forecast there as we move into the weekend and loving the warm and sunny weather after what feels like constant days of rain. But as you've just heard, there could be some more on the way, so we'll hold fire on any celebration, shall we? Let's go to areas impacted by the constant rising of water and flooding in northern Victoria. Many farmers are currently experiencing the biggest flood they've ever seen, and that's certainly the case for 22 year old Jack Martin from Neurong, about 25 kilometres north of Murrabut on the Walkall River, which actually flows on and into the Murray. He's busy trying to get livestock to high ground as he watches neighbours downstream battle countless levee bank breaches. He's speaking here with Angus Furley.
4: Well, for the month of October, we had um, the general area had pretty much 270 mils of rain, so everyone was uh, trying to pump off. Rainwater before sort of the flood got here, and then they had nowhere to pump it to for a lot of people because the flood came up for, from the month of October. I think the GG Bridge had about 5,000 megs going under it at, at the start of the month, and now it's up to um, 60,000 megs now, currently. So
3: 270 mil for October for just the one month, I imagine that's probably not too far short of your average annual rainfall.
4: Pretty much. I think in the drought years there a few years ago, we averaged about 170 mils each year. So um, it's pretty much unheard of.
3: So, what's happening with the river, Jack? I imagine it's putting a lot of pressure on those levee banks.
4: Yeah, well, down from us, downstream of us, from the GG Bridge down towards Mellon, which is the next district down, uh, about every farm has got burst levee banks and they've gone underwater in the last few days. There's not too many farms that haven't are on dry land. If that makes any sense, it's um, not too good down that way.
3: Right. So I imagine they're losing losing crop or lo- losing area by, by the minute.
4: Thousands of acres of crop, and I don't even want to think about how many stock they've got stranded and lost. I know of um, one bloke further in has lost oh yeah two and a half thousand goats on the place, and he doesn't want to know how many he'd have left after that. Now, I think he's lost the majority of them.
3: Oh, it's terrible. Terrible.
4: Yeah, but you just good. I think there's always people in worse, worse situations than what we're in. Um, we had problems with the rainwater not being able to get off our paddock, paddocks, and it was draining off for a few days into the um, Lanka Creek, which is it flows into the walkall. Cool, but after a few days of draining off, it started to back up from the walkall, cool, and now it's just rising and rising. It's um, sort of flooding us out from the inside.
3: Now, Jack, you said the levees are holding up at your place, but things are getting dicey.
4: Yeah, our levees are holding, but in a lot of spots there's only about two inches of leeway before it sort of comes over, so it's um, testing time for the levee banks, and, yeah, it's, um, we can't take much more of a rise.
3: And All right, so the level where it's at, how does it compare to past records? I mean, have you heard from the old timers about what it's been like in the past?
4: Yeah, well... At the GG Bridge, my grandfather reckons it's still two inches below 75 at the bridge, but there's more water moving through and down the river than back then just because the road levels are different and there's more water down where it escapes. But he reckons there's more water around the river now, and going down the river than what the river was in 75.
3: Can you top your banks up or is that... Just not practical?
4: No, it's just not going to... We can't do that for our banks. It's just unaccessible because of the rainwater filling up the other side of the bank. Like, we'll have... Oh, holding back five foot of water and then on the dry side, if you could call it, that's two foot of rainwater.
3: Yeah, so it's not like you can just drive a truck in with an excavator and, and get to work then?
4: No, no way. There's a few spots we can do a little bit, but you can't hold back the tide.
3: How about your livestock?
4: Well... They've got a few high paddocks, but um, it's just a matter of how long the feed'll last on them paddocks before we try and walk them out along some channel banks and truck them off somewhere. Or just it's a bit of a waiting game to see what happens there and how much higher the river gets. But we can't take much more of the rise here, which is a bit concerning because they're forecasting a new river peak in Barham there on Tuesday, I think. So it'll be interesting to see how much more the walk can take.
3: So, truck them off somewhere, what, try and find adjustment somewhere?
4: Yeah, and that's bloody hard to find adjustment at the moment. We've got um, a small irrigation block over at Moe, but but it's already packed full of sheep. We moved out earlier on, so it seems some hungry mouths may coming on in a few months.
3: So, I mean, the, the nature of this riverine flooding is that it's slow and it's long-term. Uh, do you have any idea of... How long are you going to have to put up with this for?
4: No, I mean, Grandpa reckons it could be up until Christmas, the river.
3: Yeah, so so weeks, if not months, of this to come. So what do you do?
4: Oh, just put a bit of faith in your levy banks, I suppose, and play the wedding game. I don't really know. It's the first big fight I've ever seen.
1: That's young farmer Jack Martin from Nurong. Uh, telling it like it is, really. He's only 22 years old and about 25 kilometres north of Murrabit on the Warcull River, which Warcull, Edwards will eventually meet back up with, uh, with the Murray from southern New South Wales there, uh, speaking to you on the program. And we'll move away from floods, but that doesn't make things much better for some people. Constant heavy rains and uh, flash flooding in paddocks are causing... Uh, potato growers' schedules to get pushed back and threatening this season's yield. This comes as earlier this year, hailstorms on juvenile crops saw a 30% reduction in potatoes harvested in the Ballarat region. Catherine Myers family farms seed potatoes at Torello, north of Ballarat, and says although spuds should already be planted, it's likely they'll now be delayed until December.
0: There's certainly no place you'd get, there's no way you'd get a tractor on any of our paddocks at the moment, even for feeding livestock rather than, and you're going cultivation to completely next level. The land is completely saturated and it's going to take a lot of drying time before we can work up any ground to the level it needs to be worked for potatoes. We got caught with the wet weather at the end of April and we actually haven't had it dry enough to finish digging. So... Any dry days that we get, we're still trying to get potatoes out of the ground at the moment.
5: So what will, this, what will that mean for this year's harvest?
0: It's going to be an interesting one. It's going to be a very short season. So some of the shorter season varieties will be in high demand. I imagine it'll be a delayed harvest. So it's just going to be a matter of watching and waiting and seeing what kind of weather we get over summer. If we have a warm, dry summer, which I don't think we're expecting, um, things might come quite good, but it, it's certainly going to be a challenging season for a lot of growers.
5: What will that mean for potato supply, do you think?
0: There's a fair level of impact. This weather is having on a lot of the potato growing regions in, Victoria, uh, sorry, in Australia. We've seen severe flooding through South Australia, Tasmania, Gippsland, uh, the northern Victoria, um, here and in the southwest, and of course, through large chunks of New South Wales as well. Uh, there's every potential for it to be a very tight potato season over the coming year
5: what about in your position as the VFF Horticulture Vice President, what have you been hearing about other kinds of crops?
0: Oh, we've seen the devastation that a <laughs> lot of crops have had. I saw a poor garlic grower the other day in water up to his knees, pulling out very soggy garlic crops. And floods are really cruel. It's, they hang around and they leave you with a terrible mess. It's a really cruel time for growers to to have to watch and wait and see what happens with their crops. Um, Some of the shorter season varieties, as soon as the the water gets off the ground, hopefully a lot of the green vegetables and things can be replanted and started. But any longer term crops will certainly, yeah, it's going to be a pretty cruel time for, for a lot of growers.
5: Do you think that if these sorts of seasons continue, people will just walk away from farming certain vegetables because it's just too hard?
0: I think we're certainly going to see changes in how people perceive risk. And it may be a change in a risk-return balance. So we may see, we may need to see an increase in price for certain crops for farmers to be willing to take on the risk of growing them. Yes.
5: The Australian Parliament's Agriculture Committee has commenced an inquiry into food security. Some of the statements coming out so far is saying that while Australia is one of the most food-secure nations in the world, recent events such as the pandemic and widespread floods have shown we cannot take anything for granted. We've seen shortages of lettuce and broccoli and prices going up. So what do you think needs to get be done by the government?
0: I think we really need to do some very serious planning on what our food needs are going to be like over the next 10, 20, 50 years, and then overlay that with some really clear modelling around what our capacity for food production is going to be like over that same time. We know crops that are grown in certain areas won't be able to be grown there in 20 years' time, and that our capacity for growing that food is certainly going to change. I think we really need to to overlay that food production model with our food production, uh, our food requirements, and then also consider our renewable energy requirements and overlay that as well. I don't think this is a time where we can risk any kind of food production land uh, for, for, for anything.
1: That's Catherine Myers, Vice President of the Victorian Farmers Federation's Horticulture Group and Potato Farmer in Torello, north of Ballarat, speaking with Jane McNaughton. You're listening to The Country. So, we've gone from flooding areas to rain, the areas that have had too much rain. Let's get off the coast and into ocean waters now. Off the Gippsland coast, five areas of the trawl fishing footprint are about to be struck off the map. It's a move designed to help the jackass mwong, a fish species with just 15% of its original population remaining. It's led to a $24 million licence buyback scheme, which was funded by the federal government last week. But as you're about to hear, it's taken 10 years for the Fishing Management Authority to act on lower-than-average breeding of the fish. Rio Davis spoke with the Australian Fisheries Management Authority's CEO, Wes Norris.
10: In the sort of recent episode, this really came to a head in November, December last year when we received a new stock assessment from CSIRO. And that stock assessment concluded that the status of of Jackass Moorong as a stock was far more pessimistic than the previous assessment that we'd received in 2018.
8: What's the difference there? You go from one year, you know, in previous population sustainability report, it's saying it's healthy and then a year later, it's seemingly more dire. What changed
10: A couple of things changed. The main one was a function in the stock assessment that we call recruitment. So recruitment is basically where baby fish grow up to be larger fish that are part of the fishery. And so each stock assessment has to track what recruitment has been doing, how many baby fish are growing up. In this particular case, we have a long-term recruitment trend, uh, 70 years, in fact, 1945 to 2015. Usually in a stock assessment, you use that long-term trend and that's got quite a lot of power because you know it takes care of sort of any cyclic arrangements or interannual variability and things but every now and again you need to take a step back and say does that long-term trend actually represent what we're seeing going on in the fishery at the moment and in this case it didn't and what what came out is basically that recruitment over the last 10 years 2004 to 2015 has been significantly lower than that long-term average and so the decision was taken that it's more precautionary and and probably more accurate to use that more pessimistic 10-year average than the more optimistic 70-year average. When you then put that into the stock assessment model, which is terrifyingly complex, it suggests the stock is far more vulnerable to all sources of fishing mortality than than we previously thought.
8: The consequent reduction in the fishing area, is that expected to make a significant difference to the population there?
10: Two main decisions that have been taken and they work in concert with each other. So the first one was the results of the stock assessment suggested that the the population sits at about 15% of the starting population. And that's really significant because our harvest strategy policy says that we won't tolerate anything less than 20%. So under our arrangements, we need to put in place measures to build it back up to that 20% limit as quickly as we can. So the first thing that, that the AFMA Commission did in March this year was agree to a significantly lower total allowable catch for jackass morwong. So under the previous stock assessment, the TAC was set at about 460 tonnes. Under this year's decisions, there's a there's an allowable catch of 50 tons. So that's the first step is is significantly reducing the opportunity and ability for industry to, to go out and catch the fish. What we then had to do was realize though that jackass molong is a byproduct in the fishery. It's not the main target. There aren't many boats that go out purposely to catch it. They're going out to catch other species like flathead and then they're catching molong while they're fishing for it. So we needed to take additional measures to prevent a situation where the same amount of fish got caught but they have to throw it over the side basically. The closures that we've put in place really do identify the hot spots for jackass morwong and a couple of other species that we're concerned about as well actually to provide protection to those sort of core areas where the fish are at the moment with the intention obviously that that then contributes to their breeding success and and
8: future recruitment. Do we know why the jackass morwong isn't recruiting like it used to?
10: Yeah, we've got some pretty good indications that species like jackass Morlong are being very heavily impacted by some of the climatic change that we see in the southeast of Australia at the moment. So a couple of characteristics of jackass moorlong make it vulnerable to some of the changes that we see. Jackass morong have a very long larval stage. So this is when the fish are just tiny fish. They can't swim properly. They drift around on ocean current. And so for jackass morong that can last up to 12 months and, they, and the larvae travel huge distances. When you compare that biological characteristic of of the species with some of the things that we're seeing, like the East Australian current pushing 350 kilometres further south than it ever has before, running faster than it has before, creating more eddies and more powerful eddies than it has before. You know, you can imagine if you're an animal that relies on drifting around on an ocean current for a year and then somehow ending up at just the right spot at just the right time, that kind of trend makes it pretty difficult for you. These are the things that are driving us to the conclusion that jackass more in particular, but some of the other stocks as well, are being particularly heavily impacted by climate
1: change. That is Australian Fisheries Management Authority CEO Wes Norris speaking there with Rio Davis. You're listening to The Country Hour and we've got to finish the week with, well, an interesting character anyway. Have you ever thought about packing up your job and... Getting out of Victoria, maybe moving to the far north of Australia. That's what one Victorian has done. Nick Langley decided to head north a few years ago and is now working on Australia's largest barramundi farm, producing about 100 tonnes of barra each week, employing about 150 people. Matt Brand, our reporter up there, caught up with Nick about what it takes to produce big barra. Uh, yeah, so my journey is
11: a little bit different. Um, I actually was born and raised in Melbourne, um, so I've come up from pretty much the one of the coldest parts um, to come up here. So um, from there, I was fortunate enough to get a job working um, on a, a prawn farm um, just south of Townsville and air. Um, and then sort of times changed, and, and my partner got a job up in the territory, so um, I sort of followed suit. Um, I dabbled in the uh, the coral industry for a little bit. Um, decided that it really wasn't for me, so I sort of went looking elsewhere. Um, and then, yeah, I was fortunate to come across an op- opportunity here at Do Barramundi. Um, they were obviously hiring technicians for their new nursery, which was only a couple of months old.
8: Farming prawns, farming barramundi, is there much difference?
11: Yeah, huge difference. Um, obviously, barramundi's a lot more sort of interactive. Uh, prawns, they're, they're at the bottom of a pond doing their thing. Um, it's very static culture. Um, not to say that it's, it's boring by any means. There's still certainly plenty of opportunities and challenges there, but fish can be a little bit more uh, sort of needy, I suppose, at times. But we constantly have to monitor them and, and move them around and do that sort of thing. So. Um, and they also require a lot more, more water and a lot more um, sort of attention to detail, I guess you could call it, not to take anything away from prawns. Um, no, I get it. And,
1: and tell me. Your job at the farm, what does it involve?
11: Uh, so I'm the one of the frontline supervisors in this nursery. Um, so working with my with my manager, um, we sort of run this operation of, of 14 tanks. Um, it's a very new system that we're running here. It's only about two years old. Uh, so we're constantly looking after little barramundi fingerlings. Uh, they arrive in our nursery at about 20 grams. And then by the time they leave here, they're about 200 to 250 grams. So they're in here for about a total of six weeks. Um, before they sort of make their journey between the the little sort of the other nurseries to the the ponds um, where the next stage takes over. So that's decent. Did you say 20 grams to 200 grams in six weeks? That's bulking up, isn't it? It is. They absolutely fly through when they're in here, um, especially when the water's nice and warm like we are at the moment. Um, These little fish go absolutely nuts, Um, so we have to constantly look after them, um, monitor them as well every week and then we also have to grade them and sort them to size um, so that uh, they stay nice and healthy, they don't start eating each other uh, and they they keep... Keep trucking along in, in the production cycle. So
7: that's for, I'd
11: forgotten they can be cannibalistic, can't they? Absolutely. Yeah. As, as I'm sure many um, barramundi fishers will know, they'll eat just about everything and anything they can fit in their mouth. Um, which for us, unfortunately, includes their brothers. Uh, so <laughs> we have to be very careful, uh, making sure that they're able to they have enough room, they have enough food, um, so we don't lose a uh, large proportion of our fish to, to each other. Yep. And you're right, they are just tanks filled with boys, aren't they? That's exactly right. All barramundi, as we know, they start off as boys. And then uh, yeah, about that later stage in life, they turn into girls. So, yeah, a lot of hungry little boys we've got in here. You're from Melbourne, you're working here now. What keeps you in the Northern Territory? I think it's the lifestyle more than anything. Um, yeah, there's, there's, I think it's about one third of the population owns boats, so that works beautifully with me going fishing every weekend. Love my fishing, love my outdoors. Um, so it's, it's a fantastic place to be. It can certainly be hot at times, and that has its challenges. But um, having just bought a house here as well, I think we're, we're definitely in here for the long term, and, and uh, the people are great up here. So we're really fortunate to, to be in a place where we're so happy.
1: When you go fishing.
11: Do you get much joy from catching a barramundi? Surprisingly, yes. Um, I'm not sure there's too many people in the world that would work with one particular animal and then on their days off go and try and catch the exact same animal. So, yeah, it's a, it's a very unique situation that we're in, but to be honest, we can't get enough of it and we just absolutely love it. So, yeah.
1: Are you in the metre club? I am, oh. yes. <laughs> so he's caught a metre barramundi, but I bet he misses the weather. Uh, Nick Langley, former Victorian, now working at Humpty Doo Barramundi. That's it for the Country Hour for the week. Thank you very much for being with us this week. I hope you can join us next week for another suite of programs. Catch you then.